Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right. Today, we're going to be in Doctrine and Covenants 111 and 112. And we're going to talk a little bit about finances and apostasy here. Because financing the kingdom of God on earth has been a constant struggle with Joseph Smith. Like We talked about how poor he was last time, and that didn't improve when he was called to be a prophet. When he wanted to publish the Book of Mormon, there was no way he could pay for it. God had to give Martin Harris a direct command to take out a mortgage on his farm to pay for the uh, publication of the Book of Mormon, and they weren't able to pay it back. Martin lost his farm. And things haven't really improved financially since then. They, they just can't win. They followed the command to build a house for God through great sacrifice, costing about $1.5 million in today's money. And after the dedication, they still owe the equivalent of $350,000 in today's money. But they really don't have any way to pay the loans on this temple. They have spent all their spare money trying to help the saints who have been driven from their homes in Jackson County. Adding to this, they have lost valuable resources in Jackson County, their publishing operation, their mercantile center, not to mention, most importantly, the, the vast amount of arable farmland that they had. So things are not looking good for our heroes. But then in July 1836, a member of the church named William Burgess arrives in Kirtland, Ohio. And he tells church leaders about a large amount of money that is available in Salem, Massachusetts. He said that the money was located in a cellar of a house and that he was the only living person who knew about the location of the money. Now you're like, right. But here's the thing. It doesn't look like William Burgess is making any attempt to be deceptive here. And it's uh, it's not probable that the money is there buried in a cellar, but it's also not impossible. In a time where banks failed fairly regularly, it wasn't uncommon for people to legit bury their money. Buried treasure was a real thing. And a pretty safe place to bury it would be in the, the dirt floor of the cellar of your own house where you could protect it. And so, though not probable, it's not also impossible. And so they decide to give it a go. Any guesses whether or not it worked out? Yeah. Well, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, and Hiram Smith, they all leave Kirtland on July 25th, 1836, and they go to meet with some of the church's creditors out in New York just to, to talk about their loans and the financing structures, all of that. After spending a few days in New York City, the, the group travels together up to Salem, where they meet Brother William Burgess. Now, he meets them, and after a bit, he's just like, I'm so sorry. The city's grown and changed so much since I've last been here. I don't even know where the house is. And so he leaves. Well, Joseph prays about this, and God gives us such a fascinating response. Section 111, verse 1. I, the Lord your God, am not displeased with your coming on this journey, notwithstanding your follies. Dude, I love that verse, man. That verse is speaking to my soul. It's easy. It might be easy for us to just step back and say, what a bunch of rubes. What a bunch of gullible fools. But honestly, how frequently do you feel like God just looks at you and just shakes his head? Like the other day, I got mad at my oldest son for getting mad at my younger son. Just saying. But God says, but I love that you're willing it doesn't matter that you're straight dumb sometimes, that you're a regular screw-up. I'm not displeased notwithstanding your follies. 
Because I just want you to remember you are not getting into heaven based on how good you are. You're getting into heaven based on how good Jesus is. So it's your persistence in your Christ connection that matters, not your follies. Now, around this same time as the Kirtland Temple is completed and dedicated, Joseph shares something kind of interesting with a group of saints. Joseph says, quote, We are now nearly as happy as we can be on earth, for we have accomplished more than we had any reason to anticipate when we began. Our lovely and beautiful house is finished, and the Lord has acknowledged it by pouring out His Spirit upon us here and revealing to us much concerning His purposes in regard to the work which He is about to perform. But brethren, beware! For I tell you in the name of the Lord that there is an evil in this very congregation, which if not repented of, will result in making one-third of you who are here this day so much my enemies that you will desire to take my life and you even would do so if God permitted the deed. But brethren, I call upon you now to repent while there is room for repentance and cease all your hardness and turn from these principles of dishonesty and death which you are harboring in your bosoms before it is eternally too late for there is yet room for repentance. End quote. So what is he talking about that there is this evil among the saints that if they don't repent of is going to cause their apostasy? Well, he doesn't come right out there and say it. But from the history, we know that there's some, um, there's a real sense of greed that is going on in Kirtland. Like there's a, a real spirit of speculation that is adding to the church's economic problems right now. So people are going in debt to purchase land and then they're planning to resell it at a substantial profit. Warren Cowdery, he writes, people are guilty of wild speculation and visionary dreams of wealth and worldly grandeur as if gold and silver were their gods and houses, farms, and merchandise were the only bliss or passport to it, end quote. Like Heber C. Kimball says, like he's shocked that when he leaves on a, uh, a mission, he says in this in the fall of 1836, he says, when we came, the Kirtland, a city lot in Kirtland was worth $150. But on our return, our astonishment was that the same lot was to said to be worth a $500 to $1,000. Like this is a five and 10 times increase right here. Now, like again, we're not, have no problem with people making money, but some of the problems of this is that we got this active missionary pro program that is calling people to gather to Zion, to gather to Kirtland. And then the members of Zion are, are banking on this missionary program, bringing people in and then bilking these people who have um, just sacrificed so much and taking advantage of them at five, ten times the profit. That's a little bit of this greedy sketchiness that, that we're talking about here. So just tuck that in back in the back of your mind. Following the, the Kirtland Temple dedication, um, kind of saying a similar thing, Daniel Tyler, a member of the church, he records, all the people felt like they had a foretaste of heaven, like the, the temple dedication. He's like, in fact, there were several weeks in which we were not tempted of the devil. And we wondered whether the millennium had commenced. At or near the close of the endowments, the prophet Joseph Smith addressed us. Among other things, he said, Brethren, for some time Satan has not had power to tempt you. Some of you have thought that there would be no more temptation, but the opposite will come. 
And unless you draw near to the Lord, you will be overcome and apostatize. A few months later, four of the apostles were cut off from the church for apostasy, and the standing of one or two others was very doubtful. Numbers from the other quorums also fell away and were cut off. End quote. So what is it that causes them to apostatize? What is it that causes them to fall away from the church? Well, if you can't tell already, we've been talking about money, and that's going to play a central role. So when Joseph comes back from his treasure hunt to Salem, they still need to have a way to finance uh, church operations and to, to pay for the loans on the Kirtland Temple. So Joseph Smith and some other church leaders come up with the idea of forming a bank. Now, that might seem crazy to you, but that's kind of how it's done on the frontier, basically. Like, if you need a store, you start a store. If you need a bank, you start a bank. And so uh, they drop an articles of agreement to incorporate their bank. And then uh, simultaneously, they send Orson Hyde off to the capital of Ohio to petition the legislature to become a, uh, uh, an incorporated bank. And at the same time, they send Oliver Cowdery to Philadelphia to purchase plates to print currency. Now, that may seem crazy to you, but back in the day, the, the federal government does not print money. The local bank prints money. And so you have all these different types of bills going around, and so you would print your own money. So did you notice something that's probably not super well thought out here? Is the fact that they go and get plates to print their bills before they're even proved to be the bank. And that proves to be troublesome because Orson comes back from Columbus with discouraging news. Like the, the timing is just bad. The legislature listens to the petition but does not grant them a charter to become a bank. So they have these plates to print money. They still need to make money. And the idea still is pretty sound. They would give loans to new members of the church moving in. Those loans would help to create farms and businesses. And then as the people paid back the loans, the interest on those loans would help to go pay, pay back the loans that the church has on the temple. And so they decide to move forward with the idea of making a bank. But this time they just uh, create a private stock enterprise. And just like today, if you need a, a quick loan, there are like private individuals or you can go online and, and that you can get uh, these sort of financing from private individuals and that's what they decide to do. So this honestly is a common and plausible solution to their problem. It just also happens to be horrible timing. Because as they're doing this, Andrew Jackson is the president of the United States. And Andrew Jackson hates debt and hates paper money, which makes it super funny that he is on the face. He's the face on the $20 bill. Like he would roll over in his grave if he knew this, right? Basically, how it happens is that Andrew Jackson is burned on an early land speculation deal uh, early in his life. And so because of it, he's left with a massive debt and worthless paper money. And so he hates debt and hates paper money. So when he comes into office, the national debt at that time in their money is a staggering $58.4 million, much of it because of the War of 1812 and other debts that have been ongoing since the Revolutionary War. And as president of the United States, he pays off all of it in six years. It is a massive undertaking and pretty staggering that he's able to do it. 
And basically, he does it by vetoing any spending anywhere. Like people want to create an interstate road system. And he's like, is it going to cost money? No. And so um, he, he just vetoes out everything, kind of tighten things up. And his attitude towards banking leads to stricter bank regulations. That's why when the Kirtland Safety Society, Joseph and the leaders of the church, their bank proposal, the Kirtland Safety Society, when they ask for approval, that is a good reason, a big reason why they are not approved to form a bank. Likewise, um, Andrew Jackson's insistence on what is called hard money. That means that every dollar of paper money that is in circulation, the bank had to back it up with some sort of collateral, meaning usually gold, silver, or land. So the insistence on hard money restricts the amount of capital available in the United States. And what that does is that there was a real estate bubble that has been growing and growing and growing with the settlement of the Western and New York, Ohio, and all these Western territories, Missouri and otherwise. There's been a lot of capital out there, a lot of people buying homes. It kind of probably sounds familiar to our real estate growth and, and et cetera, right? So the restriction of capital means that less people can buy homes, less people can buy lands. And all these people who have been speculating, who have been buying up property, buying up these flip homes, stuff like that, well, the, the real estate bubble pops and it starts the longest depression in American history. So it's just bad timing here for the saints. Um, adding to this, there's like people who don't like Latter-day Saints. And so a lot of the banks around Kirtland refused to accept their notes as legal tender. Basically, like I said, each bank presents their own notes. And basically, the banks would work together and accept one another's notes and, and redeem them. But other banks trying to get at the Latter-day Saints won't accept them. And so newspapers brand their, their money just as worthless. Furthermore, the Kirtland Safety Society's capital or backing of their uh, money is not in gold and silver, but rather in land. And I don't know if you know this or not, but land is really difficult to like break up into small bite-sized portions that you can redeem um, when people bring in their currency for, right? And so it's not a very liquid asset. And knowing this, enemies of the church um, purposely buy up Kirtland Safety Society notes and purposely initiate what is called a run on the bank where they try and get rid of all their hard assets, all their gold and silver in the bank so that it looks like they don't have any money. And basically, they are successful on this, making it so that the bank has to suspend paying gold and silver to its customers um, uh, only a few weeks after the first uh, notes are issued. Adding to all of this, there's a guy named Warren Parrish, who was a former secretary and close friend of Joseph Smith. He embezzles about $20,000 from the Kirtland Safety Society. It would be like half a million dollars today. Dude, when Joseph finds out, he goes to Frederick G. Williams, who was the justice of the peace, and he says, swear out a warrant against Warren Parrish and I can get the money. And for some reason, we don't really know why, Frederick G. Williams flatly refuses to do it. And Joseph says, if you give me a warrant, I can get the money. But if you do not, I will break you of your office. And that's kind of getting heated here. Remember, this is the early part of the church. Remember, Frederick G. Williams is serving in the um, 
first counselor or as a counselor in the first presidency. That's what I'm trying to say. And so he's like, dude, either do your job as justice of the peace and uphold it or you can't serve as a member of the first presidency. And William stubbornly just says, well, then break it is, let's shake hands. And Joseph shakes his hand and says, you are dropped from the quorum of the first presidency in the name of the Lord. And William replies, amen. Dude, it's just weird. So you got all these things working against the, the church and the Kirtland Safety Society. And then, like we said, the real estate bubble bursts. You have the panic of 1837 and the beginning of the longest depression in American history. When this happens, out of the 850 banks in the United States, 343, almost half, regardless, half of established banks in the United States um, close their doors and 62 um, more fail partially. So you get half the banks in America just completely disappear and the people who had their money there don't get their money back. It's just game over. State banks after this receive a shock and they never recover. We're, we're going to move more to like a, a federal system after this. When this happens, people are not happy with the Kirtland Safety Society. And by extension, they are angry at Joseph. And they start thinking this through. They're, they're thinking, well, he must be a fallen prophet if this is what's going on. If Joseph were a true prophet, then I wouldn't have lost my money. If Joseph were a true prophet, I would be rich and happy right now. Oh, man. I think that's a slippery slope, right? I think people do the same thing today. Like if God were real, he wouldn't let bad things happen to good people. If God were real, my grandma wouldn't have died. If the church were true, mistakes wouldn't happen with leaders in church history. Or if the church was true, this wouldn't happen in the church right now. I think that's just bad, bad logic right here. And maybe you take some time and think about that. That, that, um, that God only works with perfect people and that everything will always work out. I don't just think that's God's plan. And I'm not going to give you answers to this, but I do want you to start thinking about that. Why is that such a slippery slope? Why is that such bad logic? It doesn't stop people, even apostles, to start being in open rebellion to the church. Like they even trying to take over the temple and start a coup, more or less. It's a mess. Like, like a mess. And Joseph says something interesting in this just rampant apostasy. He says, quote, In this state of things, God revealed to me that something new must be done for the salvation of the church. Now, basically, there's going to be, and you're going to see in this episode, two apostles, Heber and Brigham, that are just on um, Joseph's side 100% when everybody else is flaking. And on Sunday, um, the 4th of June, 1837, Joseph comes up to Heber C. Kimball and he whispers in his ear as Heber's in the temple. He says, let my servant Heber go to England and proclaim the gospel and open the door of salvation to the nation. Do you get just what happened? Like Joseph said, God revealed that something new must be done for the salvation of the church. And if we're thinking, we're probably like, yeah, like get some money and pay off the loans and make these people happy and stop them from rebelling and being angry. 
And God does none of those things. God tells Joseph to take one of his closest supporters, one of only two really close supporters, and send him clear across the ocean. It seems illogical. It doesn't make sense. It seems like madness. Dude, Heber C. Kimball even feels like this is a little bit of madness. Like this guy is a potter. He feels like he's blue collar type dude. And he feels like going to England where they like drink tea with their pinkies out is not his jam. But I love Heber C. Kimball's um, response. He says, The moment I understood the will of my Heavenly Father, I felt a determination to go at all hazards, believing that God would support me by His almighty power and endow me with every qualification that was needed. And although my family was dear to me and I should have to leave them almost destitute, I felt that the cause of truth, the gospel of Christ, outweighed every other consideration. End quote. So his mission and the subsequent mission by the Twelve to England is going to have an incalculable impact on the history of the church. Like his mission and the, the, the following mission are going to baptize massive amounts of people. Like Heber C. Kimball thinks he's too blue-collar to go to England. Well, he's just the right amount of blue-collar. The factory workers and other people are desperate for the, the message he has to bring. By the year 1851, there are 33,000 members of the church in Great Britain, and there are only 12,000 in Utah. And of those 12,000, about 10,000 of them are British converts. It is a massively important thing for the church right now that he's doing, but it just doesn't seem to make sense. That's interesting, right? Wilford Woodruff talking about this time, he says, In Kirtland, a number of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles apostatized. Why did they apostatize? Remember, apostasy is the abandonment of religious belief. So let's just go through the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Remember, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is organized by age, and so their, their president is Thomas Marsh, and David Patton is second. Now, technically, David Patton was older, but he didn't know his birthday. Um, that's the time period we're living in. So Thomas B. Marsh hears about all this Kirtland bank difficulty, and so he travels from far west Missouri to Kirtland to just see how his quorum is doing. And so he and David are coming from Missouri. He hears that Parley's talking about going to England without even asking him, president of the Quorum of the Twelve, for permission. Now he finds out that Parley is floundering and is about to apostatize. He hears that three members of his quorum, Luke, Lyman, Johnson, and John Boynton, are in open rebellion and have participated in secret meetings to overthrow Joseph Smith. Now he learns that Heber C. Kimball... And Orson Hyde are, are sent to uh, are, and Orson Hyde are going to be sent by Joseph Smith to England, and and he's like, what authority does he have to send members of my quorum to England, right? Um, and so it's just a mess, right? And so he goes to the 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 prophet and he asks for a revelation, and we'll get to that revelation here in a bit, but. Even after the revelation, he just doesn't feel settled. Thomas B. Marsh later says in his own words, quote, I became jealous of the prophet. And then I saw double. And I overlooked everything that was right. And I spent all my time looking for the evil. And then when the devil began to lead me, it was easy for the carnal mind to rise up, which is anger, jealousy, and wrath. I could feel it within me. 
I felt angry and wrathful. I got mad and I wanted everybody else to be mad. I talked with Brother Brigham and Brother Heber and I wanted them to be mad like myself. And I saw that they were not mad and I got madder still because they were not mad. Brother Brigham with a cautious look said, Are you the leader of this church, Brother Thomas? I answered, No. Well then, said he, Why don't you leave it alone? Later, there's going to be a a moment where um, Thomas B. Marsh and another woman have a disagreement over how to divide milk from a cow that they share. And basically, his wife's in the wrong and everybody knows it. But Thomas B. Marsh says that he'll sustain the character of his wife even if he has to go to hell for it. Ultimately, um, when they make it to Missouri during the, the Missouri War that we'll talk about in the future, um, Thomas V. Marsh is going to write an affidavit to the governor, Lilburn Boggs, and he's going to, to say that Joseph Smith plans on taking the state and he professes to take, that he intends to take the whole United States and ultimately the whole world. Now, basically, Joseph Smith probably did say that he planned to take the state of Missouri and the United States and the whole world, but not quite in the way that Thomas B. Marsh is saying it. Joseph Joseph, um, intends to have the gospel and the kingdom of God spread out through all the earth, but he's making it sound like Joseph has a military force and is going to take over the world. So he leaves the church. Now, my question to you that I want you to think about, and I'm not going to give you the easy answer here, why? Why does he leave the church? Ultimately, he's going to miss it quite a bit. And in 1857, after bouncing around to several places, he's going to petition to be rebaptized. And he's going to be rebaptized in 1857. So Wilford Woodruff again in Kirtland, a number of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles apostatized. Why did they apostatize? Well, the next one in order is David W. Patton. Now, David W. Patton, like I said, was with Thomas B. Marsh when they traveled from Missouri to Kirtland. When he arrives, Brigham Young encourages uh, David Patton to get his information from faithful sources during all this mess. But instead, David Patton goes to his brother-in-law, Warren Parrish, the guy who embezzled funds, a leader of the Kirtland Rebellion. And in uh, Brigham's word, David got, quote, got his mind prejudiced end quote, against the prophet. So David goes to confront Joseph Smith. And this is not like, keep in mind, this is 1800s and the church is new. And we don't know quite what happened. But shortly after going to see Warren Parish, David goes to confront Joseph Smith. And David says something that insulted the prophet, following which Joseph, quote, slapped David in the face and kicked him out of the yard. And quote, Brigham Young said, quote, this done David good, end quote. Sure enough, after this confrontation with Joseph where he straight slaps him in the face, David is 100% faithful, all in on the kingdom of God until he's killed at the Battle of Crooked River in 1838. Following um, David Patton in order of authority and seniority is Orson Hyde. He's caught up in the financial drama of Kirtland, but when he sees Heber being set apart to go to on a mission to England, his heart is just touched by the spirit and he asks to go too. He has a wonderful experience in um, England, but when he returns and goes to Missouri and there's a big Missouri war between the Missourians and the Latter-day Saints, he gets caught up in it and he swears that affidavit against Joseph Smith. 
but he doesn't uh, stay away for long. He returns to the church in June of 1839, so he's away for just months, basically. And since he's away so briefly, he's uh, restored to the apostleship in October 1839. And so it kind of gives you a vision of how expansive Joseph's forgiveness is. Why did they apostatize? That's what we're looking for. Next in seniority, you got a guy named William E. McClellan. He says he leaves the church in 1836 because he, quote, could not uphold the presidency as men of God, end quote. But in his bishop's court uh, for his excommunication, uh, he says that he, quote, quit praying and keeping the commandments and for a time he had indulged in sinful lusts, end quote. So he leaves the church. And even though he leaves the church, he, he can't seem to leave the church alone. When Joseph Smith is arrested in Missouri and is staying in Richmond, uh, Missouri, William McClellan goes to the sheriff and asks for the privilege of flogging the prophet. Um, and now the guy was like, I'm not going to let you just whip a dude, but it's a slow night. We don't got Netflix. So if you two want to fight, sounds like a good way to spend the evening. Now, Joseph, things are going very badly for him. And he's having a terrible day. And so when the sheriff lets him know that William McClellan wants to fight him, Joseph's like, sure, take off my handcuffs. And I would love to fight William McClellan right now. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. Some of you are like, what? I love it. It's great. Dude, but William McClellan knows that Joseph is a physical beast, just a specimen. So William McClellan refuses to fight unless he could have a club. And Joseph's like, let him have a club. But the sheriff won't let him fight with a club on such unequal terms. So William McClellan runs off, never comes back to the church. Then we get Parley P. Pratt. Dude, he's also caught up in the financial drama and blames Joseph for his financial woes. And he's really struggling until his convert, a guy named John Taylor, comes and visits him. And John Taylor says this, he says, quote, I am surprised to hear you speak so, Brother Parley. Before you left Canada, you bore a strong testimony to Joseph Smith being a prophet of God and did the truth of the work he had inaugurated. You had said that you knew these things by revelation and the gift uh, of the Holy Ghost. You gave me a strict charge to the effect that though you or an angel from heaven was to declare anything else, I was not to believe it. Now, Brother Parley, it is not man that I am following, but the Lord. The principles you taught me led me to him. And I now have the same testimony that you then rejoiced in. If the work was true six months ago, it is true today. If Joseph Smith was then a true a prophet, he is now a prophet. Well, hearing this, Parley P. Pratt is just touched. And he says, I went to Joseph Smith in tears right after this. And with a broken heart and contrite spirit and confessed wherein I had erred in spirit, murmured or done or said amiss. And Joseph frankly forgave me and prayed for me and blessed me. Thus by experience, I learned more fully um, to discern and contrast the two spirits and to resist the one and cleave to the other. And being tempted in all points, even as others, I learned how to bear with and excuse and succor those who are tempted. Then we got Luke Johnson. He is one of the most heavily invested into the Kirtland land speculation trying to make money. So he is very angry at his Kirtland losses. He's in on the temple meeting that denounces Joseph as a false prophet. 
He comes back for a short time and then leaves in December of 1837. He's actually going to come back to the church about a decade later in 1846. Uh, After his baptism, he's going to move to Utah and settle in Tooele, where he's called to be a bishop. He's the only man to serve uh, as bishop in the church after having served as an apostle. Kind of an interesting tidbit there. Then you got William Smith. He's Joseph's younger brother, and he is a hothead. He kind of argues with Joseph all the time. During one argument with uh, Joseph, um, (laughs) he lunges to punch Joseph. Joseph goes to take off his coat to participate in a tussle with William, but his arms get tangled, and as his arms are trapped, William jumps on him and just beats him mercilessly. This is strange times, people. Um, Joseph forgives him about the endeavor, but their relationship and William's relationship with the church is tumultuous and tenuous at best, right? Then you get Orson Pratt. Now, Orson Pratt is actually good during this period and good clear up to the Nauvoo period. But um, in 1841, he returns from a mission and it is really, really muddy historically what goes on here. Something happens with his wife, John C. Bennett's involved, and she says that that tries to to throw Joseph off the the trail by claiming Joseph Smith tried to seduce her. Really crazy stuff. And so Orson Pratt is going to actively oppose Joseph for a while, and then he finds out more truth and what actually happens. Goes to Joseph, asks for forgiveness, comes back into full fellowship and apostleship, um, and, and is renewed. Then you got John F. Boyton. John F. Boynton is, uh, again, heavily into speculation. He's in on the secret temple meeting to overthrow the prophet. And then later he leads a group of armed with pistols and bowie knives into the Kirtland temple in an effort to take it over. Uh, At one point he draws his sword in the temple and threatens to stab his fellow apostle. (laughs) At his excommunication hearing, John Boynton says, quote, All my difficulties are because of the failure of the bank. I understood that the bank was instituted by the will of God, and I had been told that it should never fail, fail, let men will do what they would. As he says that, Joseph Smith stands up and he says, quote, If this had been declared to you, no one had authority from me to do so, for I had always said that unless the institution was conducted on righteous principles, it would not stand, end quote. So John's going to leave the church. He's never going to come back. But kind of, again, strangely, he's still really tight with Joseph. He visits Joseph, stays at his house, eats lunch, really loves him, but really wants to go out and make money. And so he does go make money. Lyman Johnson, again, heavily into speculation in Kirtland. He participates in the meeting denouncing Joseph Smith. He's going to come back for a while, but then leave in Missouri and not come back. So let's go back to this revelation that God originally gave to Thomas B. Marsh, this apostle that we started our discussion of all this apostasy. What does God tell them, right? In section 112, verse 10, it says, Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give thee answers to thy prayers. And after their temptation and much tribulation, behold, I, the Lord, will feel after them. And if they harden not their hearts and stiffen not their necks against me, they shall be converted and I will heal them. Arise, gird up your loins, take up your cross and follow me and feed my sheep. 
Verse 27, Therefore see to it that ye trouble not yourself concerning the affairs of my church in this place, saith the Lord, but purify your hearts before me. And then go you into all the world and preach my gospel into every creature that has not received it. See, God is asking them to be humble and to trust him. I I think a lot of times people are losing faith because they felt betrayed, that they feel like there was an expectation that wasn't met. But Jesus knows what that is like. Do you remember when he walks into the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks his best friends to pray for him because he's scared? And he comes back and they're fast asleep? Dude, he knows what it's like to have expectations that aren't met, to be disappointed in people, to feel lost. Or what about right after that, when one of his closest friends walks up and kisses him on the face in greeting and calls him master, while at the same time betraying him to his death for 30 pieces of silver? Like He knows what it's like to have your expectations not met. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have others fall short. If we're loyal to him, if we know that we're saved by him, if we know that this is his kingdom where we can access the power of God, that is where safety is going to be. As Brigham talks, as Joseph talks about this period, he says, Of the twelve apostles and chosen in Kirtland, there have been but two but what have lifted their heel against me, namely Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. What do these guys do that's so different? It's not like they don't experience hardships. Well, Heber C. Kimball says this, quote, This order of things increased during the winter to such an extent that a man's life was in danger the moment he spoke in defense of the prophet of God. The only consolation I had was in bending my knees continually before the father, my Father in heaven, and asking him to sustain me and preserve me from falling into snares and from betraying my brethren as others had done. Brigham Young says, During the siege of darkness, I stood close by Joseph, and with all the wisdom and power God bestowed upon me, put forth my utmost energies to sustain the servant of God. I could not sleep those days. I spent many a night all day without sleeping at all. I prayed a good deal. I know that sounds super basic, but what if it's true? What if there's something about praying right here, about really connecting with God that renews our faith? Wilford Woodruff, you know that that quote I've been referencing over and over? Here's what he says. In Kirtland, a number of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles apostatized. Why did they apostatize? Because they forsook the Lord and they stopped praying. That's huge. They wanted to get rich. They sought for honors of men and the riches of the world, and notwithstanding they were apostles, their power fell from them. If a man wants to keep faithful, he's got to live near to the Lord. Remember his prayers and realize that he is at work for the Lord and for his kingdom. End quote. And there's something to that. Remember back in the Kirtland Temple Dedication 109 verse 44? Help thy servants to say with thy grace assisting them, Thy will be done, O Lord, and not ours. Does this mean that you don't have questions or doubts? No, but doubt your doubts along with doubting your faith, man. Jesus, when he's here on the earth, he says some pretty intense things to some people who are just looking for a free lunch. 
Back in John chapter 6, verse 53, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Dude, they honestly just don't get it. How am I supposed to eat his flesh? Now you guys are like, he means the sacrament. Dude, the sacrament's not even invented yet. How are they going to know this? Like, he is saying some really graphic thing, and they're like, what? And people are just confused. Like chapter 6, verse 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Dude, that's big. We're all going to have questions. We're all going to have rough times. But that question, to whom else shall we go, is big. Does anywhere else provide you with the same powerful covenant connection with Jesus Christ? Priesthood keys that worked in the temple to seal us together in family units? Yeah, people are imperfect. And yes, our church history is messy. And yes, people say things that are going to offend you. But the same thing is true of every institution on earth. You're not going to find another religion or philosophy free from error and brokenness. You're not going to find it in something like people are like, well, I'm just going to believe in science then because it's nice and clean. Dude, science has its broken people and broken things in the past. Like, are you going to throw out science because many leaders of the scientific community in the past embraced eugenics, which is basically the systematic elimination of all humans that are deemed lesser? Stop, dude. All systems require belief. All of them require leaps of faith and wrestling with difficulties. Some, like our modern point of view today, just pretend that you don't have to take a leap of faith. And that's just not true. We are just honest about the fact that following Jesus requires faith. It requires you to take a leap into the darkness. So people in God's church are broken. And that's how it always has been. One of the main criticisms against Jesus in his first coming, that his church was full of broken people, immoral, dishonest drunks. People who for the life of them couldn't manage to seem to get their crap together. And what does he say? Mark chapter 2 verse 16. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So yeah, that guy in your elders' quorum is probably a jerk, and that girl in your ward is probably one of the least well-adjusted people around, and our history is broken, and there's things that are going to be offensive to you. But I'm telling you, that's not even the point. Our point is that the living Son of God came down and gave his life for you and has established a place where we can work together to be with him. Sometimes it's going to be hard. Maybe we take the attitude of a a young woman named Melissa Howe. She's um, She's nine years old, 
and her her young father is is dying of cancer. And her mom wrote down a prayer that she said as she's nine years old. I think it's instructive. Here's what she said. She said, Heavenly Father, bless my daddy. And if you need him more than us, you can have him. We want him, but thy will be done. And please help us not to be mad at you. End quote. How are you going to act in faith? In the name of the only one who can save us, even Jesus Christ, amen.